Please be seated. The Critique of Pure Reason was the first book by Kant I ever read. As a graduate student, I labored long and hard over it and was duly impressed, I'm afraid, as much by its difficulty as by its arguments. I remember thinking I was taking seriously Kant's claim that metaphysics or speculative philosophy, as it has been understood traditionally, is impossible and that our knowledge has limits, the limits of what we can possibly experience. The moral writings of Kant challenged me too, but not like the so-called first critique with its intricate architectonic of the workings of human knowledge. This surely, I thought, was the achievement of Kant. But fortunately, I was awakened from my dogmatic slumbers and realized that I had neglected to think about the whole Kant, even about the whole first critique. As one friend put it to me, one performed Kant rather than thought about him. I had read passages in Kant about denying knowledge to make room for faith, about silencing critics of morality and religion in the Socratic fashion, and about how Rousseau was the Newton of the moral world, but I had not really understood them. Our speaker tonight, Richard Velkley, has helped me think about Kant since then. He has thought long time about the wholeness and the unity of Kant's thought. He wrote his dissertation at Pennsylvania State University on Kant's theodicy. Afterwards, he studied in Heidelberg with Hans Georg Gadamer and Dieter Henrich. He has held fellowships at the University of Toronto, at the University of Iowa, and at Harvard University. In 1989, he published Freedom and the End of Reason, a book about the moral foundations of Kant's philosophy. He has edited a book of essays by Dieter Henrich entitled The Unity of Reason, Essays on Kant's Philosophy. He has written also on Rousseau, Schelling, Husserl, and Gadamer. He is currently teaching at the Catholic University of America and is writing a book on Rousseau, Kant, and Heidegger. Mr. Velkley's subject tonight is the metaphysics of practical reason. Uh, thank you very much, Pamela. It is a very great honor and pleasure to address uh, this distinguished audience at this uh, venerable institution. Over the years, I've had many memorable experiences here of hearing outstanding teachers and speakers. I feel rather humbled to be now in their company. It is particularly a pleasure for me to speak to an audience that contains a number of old friends, especially since among them is a teacher from whom I have learned so much, Richard Kennington. Now, you may believe you know what I will be speaking about tonight, and as a cons consequence, you may be feeling rather unhappy about being here. In fact, I will not be speaking only about Immanuel Kant and his Metaphysics of Practical Reason. Kant will be the subject of about two-thirds of the talk. There will be a number of other figures making some appearances in it. 
so you may relax a little bit, although not very much. So uh, let me begin. Uh, the contemporary misrelation between philosophy and practice. The current fascination of academia with notions of freedom as self-creation and social reconstruction is an extreme example of a tendency of philosophy and of thinking called ideology of the past two centuries. In this period, practical life has often been subordinated to metaphysical conceptions of freedom that pay little heed to the natural limitations and requirements of practical life. There's been no more eloquent critic of this tendency than Edmund Burke. His unforgettable censure of the French revolutionary hope of completely transforming practical life through radical theorizing still has force as an analysis of the late modern relation between theory and practical life. Burke writes, the pretended rights of these theorists are all extremes, and in proportion as they are metaphysically true, they are morally and politically false. The rights of man are in a sort of middle, incapable of definition, but not impossible to be discerned. Burke accuses political thinking derived directly from metaphysics of harsh and impractical simplification. He writes, the nature of man is intricate. The objects of society are of the greatest possible complexity, and therefore no single disposition or direction of power can be suitable to man's nature or to the quality of his affairs. Burke persuades us that the virtues humans can attain as citizens and political actors do not have purely rational grounds. Magnificently, he reminds us of the sources of political greatness that modern progressive politics has mostly forgotten and often is intent upon destroying. This reminder doubtless wins our approval as a criticism of a modern kind of politics derived from a distinctively modern kind of philosophy or metaphysics. Yet Burke equates his argument against the revolution with an argument against metaphysics as such. Here we must raise a doubt about his view. An appeal to the irreducible complexity of practical life against all metaphysics will neither provide a sufficient critique of problematic forms of metaphysics, nor enable, one to see, enable us to see what can be and even must be preserved in metaphysical thought. You might find it disconcerting that I suddenly switch from expressing admiration of the statesmanlike thought of Burke to hankering in an unburkean way after the abstract gratifications of metaphysics. Perhaps the ref reflection that follows will be more meaningful if I preface them with a short autobiographical remark. Long ago, I wanted to attain more clarity about the late modern situation, which gives grounds for unease to any reflective person. To this end, I studied various things, among them Kant. Inspiration for understanding this study for undertaking this study came from books by Leo Strauss and Martin Heidegger, both of whom ascribed to Kant a central role in the rise of late modern thinking in terms of values of which both writers are critics. In many ways, their accounts of the history of philosophy and of Kant's philosophy differ greatly. But Strauss and Heidegger agree on a number of important things, among them Kant's contribution toward the fulfillment of modernity in Nietzsche's absolute priority of willing over being. A claim of Kant that clearly reveals this contribution was the starting point of my doctoral dissertation. Kant asserts that the human species gives all of creation meaning and value 
through its capacity freely to legislate ends for itself. This remarkable claim is in sections 84 and 86 of the Critique of Judgment, the last of the three critiques. It is one of the most important statements for grasping the intent of Kant's philosophy. Furthermore, this statement illuminates Heidegger's complex relation to Kant. In both thinkers, there is a sort of metaphysics inseparable from the temporal existence of the human species, which takes the place of both the god of revealed religion and knowledge of nature. Thus, in spite of his criticism of Kant, which is part of his very powerful criticism of modernity, Heidegger reveals a true affinity for Kantian thinking. Heidegger published two books on Kant, the first of which characterizes Kant as Heidegger's predecessor. In seeking to uncover the ground of metaphysics in the temporality of human existence. If Heidegger is in some sense a Kantian, would this fact not illuminate the difference between Strauss and Heidegger, between their respective critiques of the accounts of the philosophic tradition? This question played a rather large role in my study of Kant. This brings me back to the theme of this talk. Kant and Heidegger are thinkers who engage in radical subordination of practical life to metaphysical thinking. In this regard, Strauss, in some agreement with Burke's analysis, is a critic of these two German philosophers and of modern German philosophy more generally. Central to Strauss's account of the modern break with antiquity is modernity's ambition, abandoning the prudent reserve of the ancient philosopher not solely to improve, but fundamentally to transform political life through philosophy. In other terms, in Strauss's account, the ancients were aware of a permanent tension between metaphysics and practical life, which is simply denied by many modern philosophers, Kant and Heidegger eminently among them. Strauss, while largely reticent on metaphysical matters, seems to think, in contrast to Burke, that there still is available an ancient way of thinking that makes sense of the permanent tension. In Strauss's view, neither Kant nor Heidegger has an account of nature that reveals that tension. I will not take much time in detailing specific practical problems that arise from the subordination of practical life to metaphysics in Kant and Heidegger. You may be familiar with Kant's assertion that morality cannot be based on anthropological grounds, but rests on a pure will that gives itself ends other than natural inclination. The existence of this pure will is what justifies Kant's employment of the term metaphysics of morals. The pure will or practical reason follows the principle of the moral law, that is the categorical imperative, that enjoins us to test all our maxims or intentions to act by the criterion of universalizability. The question is, could the maxim be made a law for all rational beings? This principle's perplexing, effect, perplexing effects on practical life are often noted. The rigorism of the moral formula is in tension with regarding ourselves as political beings living in particular societies, the common good of which prudently takes precedence, most of the time, to the universal good. And the emphasis on obedience to law as autonomous or as self-legislation tends to undermine the authority of traditions and so has laid the grounds for notions of self-legislation or self-creation that are far less rational than what Kant had in mind. 
Through both his rigorism and his emphasis on autonomy, Kant has contributed greatly to excessive hopes for progress of creating a humanity that rises above its natural mode of existing individually and political, politically, that is, its natural sociality. On Heidegger's practical thought, I say only at the moment that he is obviously not Kantian insofar as in the political realm he affirms the most drastic particularism, utterly rejecting any notions of moral precepts or common humanity that transcend being German, Greek, or whatever ethnos. His subordination of politics to metaphysics is not Kantian in this regard. On the other hand, he characterizes his metaphysical principle, the ontological difference between being and beings, as not anthropological. It is inseparable from human existence, but has no reference to the human as natural or as having soul. As with Kant's principle, it might be called imminently transcendent. What is powerful in academia today combines Kantian autonomy with Heideggerian radical ethnocentrism, with, of course, significant distortions of both elements. But something common to the elements permits this union based on vulgarization. Both thinkers lack an account of nature as placing limits on their metaphysical principle, legislation by the pure will in Kant and being as revealed in the particular ethnos in Heidegger. What then is the origin of these versions of metaphysics that demote human nature or the anthropological to something of minor significance, to even an object of contempt, while at the same time subordinating political life to the claims of metaphysics? I can offer only a few suggestions on this uh, tonight. Uh, second part, the aporia of modern metaphysics. This discussion is meant to contribute to a larger philosophical aim. The inquiry that discloses the natural basis for a permanent tension between metaphysics and practical life is itself necessarily metaphysical. It reveals a basic aporia or unresolved difficulty in the human situation, indeed in the essence of the human. The metaphysical thinking about this difficulty is therefore an aporetic metaphysics. Such a metaphysics is what we need in order to counter the escalating and destructive claims made on behalf of freedom as self-creation. This metaphysics is not merely the same as skepticism. It is not the same as saying metaphysics simply raises difficulties which threaten the force of nomos, the ground of practical life, and that therefore metaphysics must be conducted secretly far from political actors. Such hesitation to address metaphysical questions will only leave the field open to the radical reconstructionists. Instead, it is not skepticism, but genuine metaphysical insight to see that metaphysics cannot reconstruct practical life. To grasp the fundamental aporia that are natural and inevitable is metaphysical insight. It is knowledge of ignorance, which is not mere ignorance. It is learning something about the, an essence uh, the human essence. But in order to engage in this metaphysical inquiry, we must call into question the modern approach toward understanding nature in the human. The modern approach sought to bring a permanent end to the philosophical disputes about first principles, including the highest good. It was moved to this step by dismay at the disintegration of civilization through doctrinal conflict 
and the related decline of respect for philosophy. The goal of achieving enduring concord and unity could be attained by two closely related means. One, abandoning the concern with human perfection and replacing it with an orientation based on the passions and self-interest. And two, understanding the natural world in terms of primary homogeneous abstracta without regard for species, forms, and final causes, and thus on the basis of a radical doubting of the appearances of things. This latter step gave rise to the notion of mathematical laws of nature, holding across all natural species and kinds, attained through the reducing of phenomena to the language of a new symbolic and constructive mathematics that supplies the quantitative representation of the motions of bodies in infinite homogeneous space or extension. The laws governing the phenomena are also suited to enabling the human species to extend its power over nature, thus serving the human passions. On the basis of these two momentous revolutions, physics and politics to this day pursue in tandem the satisfaction of passions without concepts of the ultimate good and human perfection. This new way of thinking immediately encountered problems. The rejection of the appearances of nature and the human goes together with a view that the specifically human is found in the eye as thinking with no discernible ground or limits in being. Descartes made this move by reducing the soul, which in ancient and medieval philosophy combines the cognitive, appetitive, and organic functions to mere thinking. It was the effort of the 17th century philosophers to try to uncover the place of this eye within the natural order. But the mechanistic account of nature has little hope of clarifying the activity of thought. Leibniz saw what was needed. That he saw that what is needed is a fundamental rethinking of nature itself, in which lifeless mathematical extension is no longer primary in nature. And such extension instead is regarded as the phenomenal expression of ultimate immaterial and extensionless points of force, called monads. Leibniz intended to show that life, perception, and thought are not alien to, but constitutive of nature. Now Kant rejected Leibniz's doctrine, which one must say he understood imperfectly, for reasons I will take up later. Let me say that the difficulties in the modern account of thought or self-consciousness are not overcome by Kant. In the course of its history, the modern eye remains in a precarious relation to the world beyond itself, including its relation to other humans. Although certain of itself, and able to manipulate the given material of sensation according to self-generated plans, it has no true telos beyond itself. Accordingly, there is no place in it, in a genuine way, for either sociality or eros for knowledge of the whole. Its activities take the form of progressive mastery of the given. Its self-perfection is simply an internally originated demand for self-overcoming. The natural order, as set over against the eye, does not invite participation by the mind. It repels it or excludes the activity of mind. Human natural inclination has no inherent order. Certainly, it has no fulfillment in rational activity. 
Instead, inclination is restless power-seeking or acquisitiveness, and its inherently chaotic and destructive tendency requires curbing by the will. But this brings no happiness. Nature has therefore not made human beings for happiness. The natural inclinations demand total satisfaction for which there is no natural completion. It seems, as Kant asserts in the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals, that nature intends only for humans to find satisfaction through rational self-respect, acquired through the overcoming of their natural situation, including the inclinations. If the new account of nature achieves the absolute certainty of mathematical order, the price is the thrusting of the mind out of nature as worldless selfhood and autonomy. The human situation emerges as one of isolation and terror before an abyss. The only remedy, it seems, is a counterthrust of sheer will, which imposes a certain connection between the human subjects. This is the Habesian solution, and it could seem to be the only solution available to Kant. Yet in actuality, the Kantian solution, while akin to Hobbes, has important philosophical differences with it, and even in some ways points to what I'm calling the aporetic metaphysics that acknowledges the permanent natural tension in the human. But it does so inadequately. We must return to the phenomena, as the phenomenologist counsel, and not assume the correctness of the modern accounts of nature and mind. To help with this inquiry, I want to say a few things about how Aristotle approaches the relation of metaphysics to practical reason. When we return to the modern thinkers, we can do so with an ear that may be prepared phenomenologically by Aristotle for hearing passages in modern thought where human nature speaks its own voice, even if in muffled tones. Uh, third part, Aristotle on the intellectual virtues. Now, Aristotle presents the human mind as a complex, or rather soul, as a complex being, irreducible to a single principle, and susceptible of being divided for the purposes of analysis in many ways. The first broad division is between the part having reason, to logon ekon, and the part not having reason, to alogon. The rule of the rational part over appetite, which does not have in itself reason but can listen to reason, is the basis of moral virtue. But this does not mean that moral virtue has just one principle in the manner of modern philosophic accounts of morality. The complex classification of moral virtues defies subsumption under one principle. One difficulty is the place of the noble tokalon, which plays a role in some moral virtues and not others. Now my concern at the moment is with the intellectual virtues in book six of the Nicomachean Ethics. Here Aristotle undertakes a division of the soul's powers to discern truth. And he puts forth a primary distinction between the power of grasping first principles, archai, for things unchanging and necessarily existing, and the power of reasoning about things changing and contingently existing. These powers are respectively the power of having knowledge, to epistemonicon, and the power of calculation, to logisticon. There are yet further divisions within these powers. Within the power of knowledge, we can, discern we can distinguish between the intuitive capacity, nous, 
to grasp the first principles themselves, which are not capable of demonstration, and the capacity for making demonstrations from the first principles, episteme, which is usually translated scientific knowledge. When the soul possesses both noetic apprehension and scientific knowledge to a high degree, thus having knowledge of the most exalted objects, it has the virtue of wisdom or sophia. Calculation about changing things is also divisible broadly into art, techne, which has regard for things made, and prudence, phronesis, which has regard for things done. The virtue of prudence is the capacity to del deliberate well about human affairs with the end of achieving the good, particularly the good of a human community. In reflecting on actions, prudence searches for the best means to achieve ends that are visible to the soul that has moral virtue. Accordingly, prudence presupposes moral virtue, although it also completes moral virtue. Although prudence must have a grasp of universal principles of conduct, it even more importantly has the experience of particulars. For as concerned with action, it is concerned with things variable and particular and must develop good judgment about these. Its grasp of the ultimate particular, eschaton, the means appropriate in a given situation for a given end, is a perception, eisthesis. That is, it is not demonstrable knowledge. But prudence as concerned only with the changing affairs of the human species is far from the highest concern of the intellect. There are things in nature more excellent than man things unchanging and not subject to human action. And these are the concerns of wisdom, which alone, also alone, provides true happiness for the soul, eudaimonia. Now, I hope you can forgive me for wanting to move immediately to problems in such a beautiful account of things. But this account raises a number of questions. The distinction between wisdom and prudence as presented allows no place for an inquiry into the human soul as possessing both wisdom and prudence. Prudence as concerned with action relating to human affairs is not theoretical inquiry about the nature of human things. Wisdom as theoretical inquiry about superhuman matters is turned away from human things. The inquiry taking place before our eyes in, in the ethics has no place in this division of powers. It would then seem that wisdom, or to use the later term metaphysics, cannot be an architectonic science that embraces the whole, illuminating the place of the human in the whole. All the same, wisdom is that which prudence must serve, as medicine serves health. Prudence or political science does not legislate over wisdom. The life of the city is not complete by itself but looks beyond itself towards wisdom as the highest end. Is it then possible that wisdom could be ignorant of that for which it is the highest end and principle? Indeed, on this account, prudence is more comprehensive than wisdom, for prudence both looks to the city and looks towards wisdom as the highest end. Wisdom transcends the city without knowing anything about what lies below. This presentation is indeed in some way flattering to prudence, more flattering to prudence than to wisdom. But a prudent listener to Aristotle will miss crucial things if he or she pays attention only to what Aristotle says 
and ignores his deed as speaker, which displays another kind of wisdom. This is just to say that the listener or reader who accepts Aristotle's division without question is necessarily unfamiliar with philosophy, whose nature is not graspable by such divisions. If philosophy seeks understanding of the whole, then it cannot regard the humanness of the knower of first principles as utterly contingent or accidental to that knowing, as Aristotle seems to claim it is in Book 10 of the Ethics. Philosophy is seeking to understand the order of the whole, also seeks to understand the unity of the soul. Wisdom as described in the ethics is indifferent to that unity. It does not see the problem of unity. It is ignorant of the unity without knowledge of its ignorance. The implication seems to be that wisdom is not available about the unity of the human. Instead, the question of unity makes philosophy the love, love for wisdom possible. Division or diiresis of the soul forms part of the pursuit of wisdom without bringing it to an end. Things become more intelligible when divided and more so when the divisions have apparent self-sufficiency. If the parts could exist apart from one another, the parts of the whole, then the mind could contemplate each part as a self-sufficient whole. This is what wisdom does when it contemplates the unchanging parts of the whole. It seems that a perfectly intelligible world would be composed of such self-sufficient parts. But the one thing in the whole that would be wholly unintelligible is the soul that seeks the connection between those parts. The divisions of the soul go only part of the way towards making the soul intelligible, for they do not address the soul's activity of searching for its own unity. Another way to express this is to say that there must always be some gap between what is perfectly intelligible and being. For the universals or the forms, the most intelligible components of the whole, do not fully illuminate the being of things. This problematic runs through the treatises called the metaphysics. From them we know that Aristotle, in opposition to the followers of Plato, insists that not the universal or the form, the what, is substance, that is, self-sufficient being, but the concrete individual, the this. All the same, it is preeminently the what that we acquire, through the what, that we acquire knowledge of a thing. In the attempt to make the generation or causality of a being intelligible, we turn first to the what. Now, admittedly, the doctor does not treat illness as universal, but the particular ailment of the particular patient. In this way, the concrete individual is certainly primary for sense experience and action. But the doctor's art rests on knowledge of the universal, what restores health to humans generally and not solely to one patient. In a striking example, Aristotle mentions Socrates. What we understand most about him is his humanity, what he shares with other humans, not what makes him uniquely Socrates. But this is what makes him a philosopher of the most remarkable order. Is this accidental to Socrates' substance? 
As does Plato in the Republic, Aristotle raises the question of how principles of intelligibility relate to those of generation or being. This is always the aporia. I quote here from Book Zeta. Indeed, the question which was raised of old and is raised now and always, and is always the subject of doubt, is what is being. The question of being can and must arise because intelligibility is neither coincident with nor disjunct from being. Now, from the standpoint of prudence or practical reason, which does not want to engage in lengthy dialectical inquiry, but always seeks an endpoint, eschaton, of deliberating in order to act, the divisions of the soul have the appearance of finality. Because prudence thinks that being intelligible, intelligibility should coincide in something worthy of the name wisdom, it is satisfied with the disjunction of prudence and wisdom. Philosophy, on the other hand, as moved by the aporia of the relation of prudence and wisdom, acknowledges that being and intelligibility are mostly and perhaps always non-coincident. Uh, fourth section, Kant on metaphysics and practical reason. Yet a third stance is that of modern philosophy. It can be said that it demands the identity of prudence and wisdom, or metaphysics and practical reason. Only a thinker with extraordinary ambitions for unity, and not a prudent mind, Phronimos, content with disunity, could make such a demand. But the effect of the demand is the complete split between being and intelligibility. The modern philosopher identifies the intelligible in nature with what is immediately available to consciousness. He identifies what is first in nature with what is first for thought. Nature possesses a mathematically clear surface, while beneath the surface it is utterly mysterious. Thinking itself is one of the greatest mysteries. Thinking is a primary source of being, cogito ergo sum. But qua being, as thinking being, it is unintelligible. We return to Kant to consider his relation to modernity. Kant insists that the modern account of the intelligible is definitive. In its Newtonian form, as the mathematicized absolute substrata of space and time, it secures universal and necessary knowledge of nature. Kant also claims that this account of the intelligible is incompatible with knowledge of ultimate substances or causes that ground the spatio-temporal realm, such as Leibniz, sought to know. Kant in writings of the 1760s, well before his magnum opus, The Critique of Pure Reason of 1781, argues that space and time uh, are treated as, as, excuse me, argues that if space and time are treated as merely relative to substantial beings, as in Leibniz, then the sciences of space and time, the mathematical, become merely empirical and their apodictic certainty is overthrown. Therefore, space and time are absolute and underivable wholes. All natural events are conditioned by these wholes and cannot be referred to any factors outside them. Natural events are knowable only as related to other natural events within the substrata of space and time. Among natural events, therefore, we will find no absolute or unconditioned being. It follows that the natural order is, as an order of causal explanation, 
is a self-sufficient whole of mere relations, at least with respect to knowledge. Even so, Kant claims that a metaphysics of ultimate grounds is a requirement of human reason. It is not required to supply the laws of nature, but to address the fact that in itself, the science of nature lacks any intelligible relation to a being that thinks, acts, and has purposes. Uh, to say that the modern intelligible is split from being is also to say that there is no account of its goodness for any being. I have argued elsewhere in terms I will just briefly recall that Kant finds in Rousseau the account of that being, the human, that must supply the principle of the good that justifies science and all employment of reason. Kant gathers from Rousseau not simply a, a new moral principle, but a way of justifying reason as a whole. Therefore, Kant's relation to Rousseau is crucial to Kant's entire critical approach to metaphysics. Rousseau's account of freedom, Kant believes, can provide a telos for reason without introducing the problems of natural teleology. Indeed, Rousseau is the source of a new historical conception of reason as having unlimited perfectibility. This is crucial to Kant's account of man as the producer of culture and of humanity as having its supreme position within the whole as the giver of ends to itself. Yet Kant departs markedly from Rousseau in a crucial point. Kant, unlike Rousseau, claims that freedom operates as an unconditioned cause, at least with respect to the determination of the will. It is not reducible to another conditioned event within natural causal nexus. Were freedom so reducible, it could not meaningfully be the ground of goodness and purpose for science. There would be no sufficient ground for referring to the determination of the will rather than to other events in the limitless sequence of causes in the universe for the justification of science. Even so, Kant still lacks, by 1770, a satisfactory way to reconcile the knowledge of nature with the principle of freedom. The modern intelligible equally needs and forbids a metaphysics of unconditioned grounds. The situation of reason thus seems paradoxical and antinomic, even hopeless. The dialectical conflict within reason threatens to promote distrust of reason that could return society to barbaric chaos. The critical philosophy that emerges between 1770 and 1781 is Kant's resolution in a theodicy of reason. The critique of pure reason argues that in spite of the finitude of reason's metaphysical insight, a non-apparatic science of metaphysics is possible, one that grounds all sciences in practical life. Indeed, Kant, in the style of other modern philosophers, asserts that he resolves all the fundamental problems of philosophy. Kant claims to have discovered that human reason possesses hitherto unknown sources for pure or a priori knowledge. That is, knowledge not derived from experience, but presupposed by any experience. We have knowledge only of things as conditioned by these a priori sources, and no knowledge of things in themselves. Sensation is received by our sense organs and then ordered by the a priori forms of space and time in the categories of thought. This ordering makes possible the structure of law-regulated events described by the modern mathematical sciences. 
Space and time are only human forms of receiving the material of sensation. They are not substantial substrata, as in Newton. They are merely phenomenal. But since their phenomenality is grounded in a priori principles of cognition, they retain their absolute character. The phenomenal is not abstracted from the noumenal, as in Leibniz. Kant identifies the a priori character of space and time with the fundamental elements of Euclid's geometry and of arithmetic, thus assuring the application of mathematics to all phenomena. The technical statement of this is the following. Both pure mathematics and the mathematical knowledge of nature rest on synthetic a priori judgments. It is in such judgments as structuring our experience that the mathematical categories of unity, substance, and causality, and the like, have their legitimate employment. Thus, the categories have no cognitive access to something beyond or prior to the mathematical account of nature. This so-called transcendental argument about the a priori conditions of our knowledge constitutes the famous Copernican revolution in philosophy. The center of cognition is moved from the object and placed in the synthetic activity of reason. Such restriction of speculative reason could be read as a very disappointing outcome. But Kant maintains that, in fact, it entails a large gain for the interests of humanity. He claims it is only because our reason lacks insight into ultimate substances or things in themselves that we are able to be free to have self-consciousness, even to think humanly. The proof that the order of the laws of nature is only a phenomenon based on our intuitions of space and time permits human reason to make the unchallengeable assumption, which can never become cognition, that freedom exists as a non-phenomenal cause. Through his arguments, Kant wants to restore the honor of metaphysics as the architectonic science after the powerful assaults on the possibility of metaphysics in Locke and Hume. But what in his account warrants the adjective metaphysical? The principles of reason in nature and morality are more than psychological facts. They possess a certain objective necessity for all possible rational and finite, that is, non-divine beings. In this sense, there is a new kind of metaphysics. One aspect of the argument relates only to knowledge. The dogmatic tendency of past metaphysics is towards monism, the reduction of all being to a single principle or kind of being. Monism renders incomprehensible the mind's capacity to deal in any way freely, or as Kant also says, spontaneously, with what is given to it. In monist, most monistic thought, either the mind is entirely determined by what is given, as in the empiricist psychology, based on the mechanistic accounts of nature. Here one can think of Hume. Or the mind generates through its own innate power all that is known to it, as in Leibniz's monads, whose essences contain all their attributes, including their perceptions. Now, we might object that these are not the only accounts of the mind before Kant, but Kant does not really see the others. 
mechanistic and rational substance psychology dominate the field. Against both, Kant thinks he must defend the mind as spontaneous. Only if the mind has a certain freedom as ordering, but not as absolutely producing what is given to it, does it operate in a recognizably human way. Yet this defense of spontaneity or freedom does not prove the reality of an unconditioned cause. It simply supports the idea of a certain spontaneity needed for cognition. And Kant requires more than this. Freedom as unconditioned would per permits Kant to relate all knowledge to an ultimate end or telos without reducing knowledge to a mere instrument of the passions. The peak of philosophy then would be moral wisdom that legislates the ends that all sciences are to serve. The philosopher in the true sense is the legislator of human reason. Philosophy without governance by moral wisdom, Kant says, is a scholastic doctrine with only contingent ends. Philosophy in the genuine sense is an organic system serving essential ends. But to actualize that system, we must have insight into the reality of freedom. What is the source of such insight? Since Kant denies the possibility of knowledge of any substances as they exist in themselves, the source cannot be knowledge of the human soul as it exists in itself. Nor can it be the natural inclinations that belong to the merely phenomenal aspect of the human. For this aspect contains no unconditioned causes. The source of insight into freedom's reality is the moral law alone. This again is not anthropological, but something superhuman within the human. As such, it is the true core of metaphysics. The supreme moral law, which commands unconditionally, corresponds to the metaphysical unconditioned cause about which reason has for ages been seeking speculative insight in vain. And so Kant says, morality satisfies the metaphysical longing, or eros. Kant claims that the ideas of God, freedom, and immortality which are postulated as indispensable supports for morality, constitute the sole subject matter of metaphysics. The moral law provides the non-apparatic foundation of all human thought and practice. This is the full meaning of the primacy of practical reason. Now let us see how this, how what has just been said relates to the situation in Aristotle. Unlike Aristotle, and like many other modern philosophers, Kant requires that the premises and conclusions of philosophy, both theoretical and practical, have apodictic, absolute certainty. Furthermore, Kant requires that moral wisdom be the crown of metaphysics. This wisdom has no foundation in speculative knowledge of nature or being. Rather, it is based on the unconditioned command of the moral law, which somehow resides in reason wholly apart from the natural order. Thus, there are two drastic differences with Aristotle. One, the highest activity of reason is not wisdom about the superhuman natural order, as in Aristotle, but moral wisdom, which is based on a new sense of the superhuman as the moral law. And two, Kant's moral wisdom is not the prudence of Aristotle, which deliberates about the changeable, but a metaphysics of a priori, that is, 
universal and necessary principles. Kant can give moral wisdom such a lofty position only because he can understand moral wisdom as a science, albeit not a theoretical science, of necessary laws. Both of Kant's differences with Aristotle are motivated by the modern account of the intelligible, which in turn is motivated by the search for non-apparatic foundations of philosophy. But we recall that Aristotle's division between wisdom and prudence seems incomplete and even misleading, as unable to account for philosophy. It lacks a place for inquiry into the parts and unity of the soul, of which, the in, of which, the, of which inquiry, the ethics itself, is an example. Philosophy is inquiry about that being, the soul, in which intelligibility are, and being are both together and separate. Now, is there a comparable reflection in Kant? I would say there is, but in Kant's case, the reflection points toward a metaphysical thinking from which Kant has barred himself. It calls for a thinking about being which is aporetic and inconsistent with the modern demand for the completion of philosophy on non-aporetic foundations. So this comes, to, comes finally to the last section. Kant's hesitant opening to the soul. There is a natural tendency to regard wisdom as a knowledge of unchanging being that leaves behind the activity of the knower, that is the soul, and therefore leaves the question of the relation between wisdom and humanness out of view. This tendency, which Aristotle implicitly addresses, was quite explicitly a theme of Socrates in his criticism of the early self-forgetting physiologoi, who speculate about the natural whole with little regard for the human. Is this a theme of Kant? I have already mentioned that for Kant, the metaphysical problem can be described as the conflict between a monistic tendency in previous uncritical philosophy, whether dogmatic or skeptical, and the need to relate knowledge to a being that thinks, acts, and has purposes. Critical philosophy in Kant's sense can be understood as reflection on what makes philosophizing possible. Turning to the thinking subject as the condition for philosophy, criticism, in Kant's sense, exposes those doctrines that are inconsistent with thinking. Kant argues that the activity of reason is not derivable from the objects of its activity. This is akin to saying that the soul is not derivable from unsold beings. But if we were to say to Kant that his view of being is too narrow, that it has no place for active forms in nature with energia, having affinity with the soul, well, what could he say? Well, this is an excellent objection. I agree. But the problem of understanding those beings, the active forms, is very much the same as the problem of understanding our own soul. The problem is now pushed into the realm of nature. And perhaps we still have to start from ourselves, our own soul, to illuminate what we see in nature as akin to ourselves. And what we still do not understand in ourselves, much less in nature beyond us, is how intelligibility and being, or form and causation, exist together 
as same and different. Unlike any other being, we have questions about that relation. The relation makes possible our questioning. Thus, our questioning illuminates that relation. We must therefore question our questioning to understand the relation. The Socratic turn to the human is inescapable. A related line of thinking can be found in Kant. Indeed, any true philosopher will reflect on what makes philosophy possible as a human activity. One of the four primary questions to be addressed by the critique of pure reason, as presented in its introduction, is how is metaphysics as a natural disposition, naturanlage, possible? This is not just to ask, what are the questions of metaphysics, but how is it possible to ask the questions of metaphysics? Few Kant scholars have given any attention to this question. Heidegger discusses it on the first page of his first Kant book, for which the question is the guiding theme. Having limitations on my time, I must abbreviate some rich and complex discussions. To ask the question of how philosophy is possible is, in Kant's view, to ask, how does reason pursue knowledge of ultimate grounds that have no prior grounds and which thus support or comprise totality? Clearly, such knowledge is not given and is being sought. This means that the mind itself is not the whole, that what it produces or contains is only part of the whole. The mind, in addition to whatever it produces or contains, receives material for knowledge from independent sources. And with respect to what it receives, it seeks totality. This shows that our mind is dependent for what it uses as the material for thought. and is not a creative intellect, intuitive understanding, or intellectus archetypus, that produces the material for its thoughts. The search for totality in relation to what is given must have some structure. And the primary structure that the mind employs is logical. Indeed, logical thought is the very essence of human reason. But what is logic? For Kant, it is not just a set of rules for producing arguments. It is the capacity to think in terms of the universal or concept, conceptus communis, a thinking that occurs at all levels of thought and experience. Kant's transcendental deduction of the conditions of objective knowledge, the central text of the Critique of Pure Reason, is the account of the conditions for the logical use of concepts in relation to objects. It thereby, thereby helps to eliminate how philosophy is possible. The key to this text is to understand a central, easily overlooked premise. Kant calls concepts possible predicates. By its nature, a concept refers not just to an actual object or subject for predication, but to indefinitely many possible log logical subjects or predicables. This is what makes the concept universal. The predicate red, in this apple is red, applies to countless possible subjects besides the given one. The question now becomes, what is required in order to think the possible conceptually? 
Only humans anticipate an indeterminate realm of predicables for common concepts. They thereby anticipate how intuited material for knowledge as a whole is available for thinking with concepts. In order to do so, there must be a unifying factor with respect to all possible intuitions in space and time. This is the I, the I think, that anticipates that it can think all possible intuitions. Kant calls this the transcendental unity of apperception. The presuppositions of logical thinking include, crucially, the I as the source of self-identity required for all thinking. In logical thinking, the human mind anticipates the possible and thus manifests its capacity for a certain freedom from the actual. This freedom or spontaneity is a condition for the use of categories, the metaphysical concepts, that anticipate the possible ways that intuitions are connected. Now such is only the start of the account of how philosophy is possible as human activity. In Kant's account, the human search for knowledge of the whole requires that the intelligible, that is, possibility as concept, be both together with and apart from being, that is, actuality as intuition. Now this recalls a similar situation that I said was implicit in Aristotle. In both thinkers, the question of the possibility of philosophy is the same as the question of the soul. What is the soul? That being that has this peculiar power of relating intelligibility and being. For Kant, the question is sometimes expressed in terms of the soul. But more often, it is expressed in these terms. What is the mode of the existence of the I? Kant here is very reticent. He asserts we cannot know what the I is in itself. Yet we are sure all the same, he says, that it exists. Its very existence, he says, is a wonder. With the admission of this wonder and aporia, Kant opens the door hesitantly to the permanent and unanswered questions of philosophy. <laughs>